0: to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Between 1550 and 1650, English trade flourished as thousands of merchants sought out and profited from new trading opportunities across the globe. In his new book, Merchants, Edmund Smith charts the experiences of England's tradespeople, from their shared identity and livelihood to their thriving ventures and unfortunate blunders. Speaking with our podcast editorial assistant, Emily Griffith, Edmund reveals how this tightly woven merchant community helped bring about the globalisation of Britain.
1: So thank you for joining us today, Edmund. It's really lovely to be talking to you.
2: Thank you. Lovely to be talking
1: to you too. So today we are going to be talking about your new book, Merchants, which looks at the story of the mercantile community between 1550 and 1650. So I wanted to start by asking you, why did you choose to talk about merchants in this period? Is there anything defining about the period or anything that stands out about the merchants of this time?
2: Well, I think this period that we know of as being a period of quite revolutionary change in Britain, it starts with crisis over succession, it includes religious turmoil, it ends with the Civil War. But alongside that narrative, we also see during this century quite incredible commercial change. Uh, The way that people do business changes, the way in which they have relationships, the way that the economy is structured, all change. And merchants are at heart of that process. And the reason that they're so key in this development is that it's also a century that, for the first time, British people are going out and meeting other people across the world. It's the first time we see sustained engagement with places like the Mediterranean, with the Baltic, with Africa, with the Americas, and voyages going as far, of course, as India or Japan. And because of that, merchants are at the heart of a changing relationship between Britain and the world. And that redefines both the way in which... Britain or England goes about its trade and empire, but also changes society itself. These merchants are the heart of political activities and social change as well. And that's the combination of factors that really fascinated me and drew me towards this topic.
1: For a little bit of context, could you tell us a bit more about how early trade functions and where did merchants fit into all of this?
2: Yeah, so traditional trade, sort of at right the start of the period that I'm looking at, around 1550, is very much from England, a fairly limited channel trade. So these are ships going to France, to the low countries, to northern Germany, or to Spain, that are fairly short distances. They're not huge vessels. And normally, they're participating in trades that relate to the export of British broadcloth, which is a very high quality, but quite simple white fabric that's undyed and unfinished. What we see over the course of this century is that Merchants try to reach different locations, uh, further distances, larger vessels, more complicated trading arrangements. And in doing so, they're going after different types of commodities. Um, I've mentioned the geographical spread, but there's also a huge array of different items that they're trying to gain access to, uh, ranging from ostrich, ostrich feathers in Morocco to silks in Persia and this sort of exotic, exciting item. And the way in which trade is structured is structured in ways to try and take advantage of that. So we see the rise of joint stock corporations most famously the East India Company on the one hand, but also the development of things like English participation in colonies or the sending of militarised trading fleets overseas. And those two really go hand in hand. It's the expansion of trade and commerce alongside the expansion of empire.
1: So this is one thing that you really pick up on in your book is this sort of shaping of a more globalised England. What was the merchant's role in shaping England's trade and empire?
2: I don't think it can really be overstated. They're unique merchants. It's not just a description of the activity that they did, but it's a unique professional identity. So we see repeatedly in the, this period the use of the term "mia merchants, which literally means only merchants. These are people who were only their role in society was to trade overseas. What they were trained to do was to trade overseas. And they have a monopoly over that activity. People who are, say, retailers, shopkeepers, members of the gentry, they weren't allowed to participate in many of these trading companies. So merchants were the only bridge between England and the world. So they directed and controlled the way that it was globalised. Because of that, what we see is merchants really partly sort of self-regulating and partly responding to these changes and coming up with new ways of organising themselves, which then go on to form the basis for ongoing globalising development in England. So I've mentioned corporations already, which is the obvious one, Um, but also things like the way that marketplaces work. Merchants built the Royal Exchange in London, which was quite quickly, it became a global marketplace, all the goods of the world under one roof in the centre of London. And that completely changed the way that people could respond to the world and engage with it. They had access to these items. Um, They were able to gossip and meet with people who had travelled across the world within this very small location. And that radically altered the way in which they understood themselves, but also the way that they understood the world in which they were part.
1: So you've spoken a lot about this idea of a community almost. What community could we expect to see and how did this sort of play into their work?
2: To understand the merchant community we really need to look back to the origins of many of these merchants taking their first steps into the business world. And that's through training, um, their apprenticeships. Most merchants completed an apprenticeship that lasted around seven years working with a senior merchant, normally living with them, acting on their behalf. And this solidified at this very early stage in their lives, their late teenage years, their early 20s, a sense of being part of that individual sort of personal network so the apprentice works with their master their master then has business partners normally members of the same livery company or the same trading corporation and that's sort of the secondary network it grows within that the apprentice becomes part of that community and then later that expands still that group of individuals might invest in a new company like the east india company or participate as a group in new trades to the americas or wherever else then bringing them into contact with yet more people But at the basis of this is still the apprenticeship. It's that level of training that all of them have in common. They know the expectations of how they should act, the behaviours that they all share, and that informs the way that they can do business with each other. The sense of community that comes out of this is very, very rich, but it's also one that is, in some part, based on these sort of strict regulations. There's not just the sense of family or the sense of community in a positive sense, but there's also a quite rigorous... Um, effort to impose that sense of community on people. If you act in ways that diminish that community, that are detrimental to that community, you can be fined, you can be thrown in prison, you can be exiled from the city. You know, there's something there that needs to be protected, and early modern merchants really understand that. The community is what gives them the strength to participate in these trades successfully. Um, So it can be very positive. It does have that nice sort of personal element to it, but it's also something that is uh, strictly controlled and forms this structure that we see across society.
1: What sort of regulations might we expect? What sort of rules were placed on people within the community?
2: So they could range from everything like trading regulations, so the expectation that you go to a particular market overseas or that your goods are maintained to the highest standards or that you follow the right rules to do with credit and debt and this sort of thing. Um, But they could also be about personal relationships. So Merchants travelling somewhere like Germany, for example, weren't allowed to marry local women because that was seen as a threat to the community. If you were married to a local, you might lose contact with the British community, the English community in Germany, and sort of, you know, uh, betray the trust that you have with your fellow Englishmen. And similarly, there's rules against uh, gambling or going to inns or drinking too much. Um, All of these things can be detrimental to the reputation. Back home, there's also an expectation about acting civilly. So this is the expectation rules specifically saying that you sh- when you're in meetings with merchants, you shouldn't shout, you shouldn't raise your voice, you shouldn't use lewd words. You have to act in a way that's responsible. And when you don't, you will be punished. As I've said, there are a range of different fines and other punishments available, um, ranging from sort of minor misdemeanors such as shouting or going to the wrong inn, ranging through to things that are damaging to the wider reputation. So if you insult the master of a company, there's a good chance you're going to find yourself in a lot of trouble. The final regulation that's really important but perhaps doesn't often come to mind is there's lots of regulation about the control of information. So in the early modern world, merchants are depending on relationships to distant ports, to distant oceans, And to maintain that requires trustworthy communication. You need to rely on the letters that are coming to you, are just coming to you, they haven't been opened by other people, and that what's contained has been collected just for you. When merchants were found to have opened other merchants' letters or to have corrupted this system, they would often find themselves immediately cast out of these organisations. It was one of the sort of ultimate crimes within the community because it took away this basic structure. It made it impossible to do business on a global scale.
1: Could we say this was a way of life then, not just a job?
2: Being a merchant was absolutely part of a merchant's everyday life. It was an experience that shaped, as I've mentioned already, their education, but also Significant likelihood that it would shape their marriage, shape the way in which they constructed a household, the way that they took people in as apprentices, the way that they raised their children. Um, and that's all obviously part of their, their everyday life. But beyond that, these organisations, they're often social as well as business organisations. And it was expected that you fully participate in those livery companies in London would hold magnificent feasts. They'd hold parades across the city. And it was not just an opportunity to take part, but you were expected to take part. You could again be fined if you didn't turn up to these parties. If you didn't dress up in your finest outfit and participate in a parade, again, it would be deemed a negative contribution to the community. And these were aspects of life that did have an element of Trade involved. They were about securing the relationships and building up your community. But they were obviously social as well. They were about having friends and associates and people that you could rely upon. And there's an incredible sense of neighbourhood across many of these communities in London, but especially in places like Bristol or York or Hull, where merchants were a cohesive part of a much smaller population, often living in only a handful of streets, very much interacting with each other socially as well as in business.
1: Your book seems to turn the historical story on its head. It's not just about the big companies, but also about the individuals that feature. What type of person became merchants? Are there any sort of standout characters to you?
2: Yeah. So I think the historical story is dominated so much by companies like the East India Company, they're often presented as these sort of monolithic entities that are all powerful and controlled by a boardroom in London, sort of with nefarious effect. And that's not completely wrong, but it misses the picture that underneath that monolithic entity, there are hundreds of individuals who are taking part. And in other corporations that are less well known or even beyond them, trading to France or Spain, for example, there are hundreds more merchants. Many of these are not super rich members of the sort of 1%, to use that characterization. They're people who, for them, trade is their profession, it's their day job, but it's never going to bring incredible wealth. And that's something I think that is important to remember. And it does impact on the question of who becomes a merchant. It's not always people who are seeing the possibilities of trade as source of their fortunes. It's often people who, as I say, their parents or their uncles or people associated with the family might already be merchants. It might be an opportunity for them to obtain an apprenticeship in a useful way. Other apprenticeships at the time would have included manufacturing in England and sort of all a huge swathe of the economy uh, was Controlled or undertaken by people who did apprentices of one sort or another. And becoming a merchant was just one option among many, often as a consequence of circumstance, if you knew the right people to get that apprenticeship. And it also came down to being part of the right locations. If you wanted to become a merchant, you. There were merchants born all across England, but generally they navigated to London or Bristol or Norwich or these other trading centres whereby you had access to the port, you had access to the possibilities of overseas trade. And perhaps they were inspired by these sites of the global that we see in places like the Royal Exchange. They moved to the city as young men or grew up there and see other merchants bringing this resplendent, luxurious wealth to the city are inspired to follow in their footsteps. I think some of my favorite examples are people who take that sort of slightly strange route into business, the people who are the first member of their family, perhaps, to be a merchant. Um, In the introduction to the book, I follow this one guy, William Turner, around, who is quite typical in some respects. He's a member of some of the big companies. Uh, He's a haberdasher. He's a member of the East India Company. But he also gets in trouble. He desperately tries to get to markets before other people and finds his, his ship in disrepair. Um, he gets kicked out of one company for marrying a foreign woman. And throughout his life, you can see it's somebody who's at his sort of basis, his, his upbringing was as a merchant, and he knows that community. But he's always trying to push beyond it and try and find that next Opportunity. And that I think is what perhaps defines this community in a way that separates it from others. We see so many people trying and being willing to take advantage of these global opportunities and put their money and lives on the line sometimes to participate in that.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
2: When merchants start to take part in colonies, it's when merchants start to build their own war fleets, it's when merchants decide that they should be able to take control of the entire northern Atlantic and monopolise the fish stock that's found there. It's these steps beyond what's acceptable that motivate people to question whether merchants are taking advantage of their unique status in society.
0: (laughs)
1: Could you perhaps tell us a bit more about that motivation? I think there might be a perception there that it's it's all about that element of greed or um, ambition or it's all in the name of the crown and
2: country. So early modern merchants were inspired by a huge range of different things. You've mentioned God and country and also religion, the desire to proselytise and expand Christendom. These were motivations alongside Greed um, and a desire for profit. And also a desire to see the world. I mean, we do see merchants who, although they are taking jobs because it is a job, this is their livelihood. They're not, in most places, uh going without expectation of significant returns. But once they arrive, that desire to conduct their business is often combined with a desire to understand the place they're living in. Um, we have wonderful accounts left by merchants in their journals and in letters back home where they describe their wonder of arriving these destinations um, ranging from America to Asia all over the world we see merchants trying to understand and being amazed by the people they're interacting with by the cultures they're seeing often for the first time and trying to bring this into a way of understanding the world. So they'll send these letters home, more merchants will read them. The possibilities of trade are necessary for a merchant probably to take an interest, but quite how they interpret that can depend on so many of these other things as well. The sense of the exotic or wonder um, is really important. And I think that's something we see, especially in the way in which merchants select which trades they're going to take part in or where they're going to send their ships. Sometimes a good report, say, from the Mughal Empire will arrive in London at the same time as quite a negative report of an island in the Spice Islands. And therefore, they'll send, decide to send their ships to the wondrous Mughal Empire that's being described rather than to this other location. So while there is a desire for profit and need to maintain their livelihoods, the way in which they go about that is shaped by a myriad of other ways of understanding and viewing the world.
1: You've spoken a bit about their letters. What other sources do we find this information in? Have you found any in your research that have been perhaps underrepresented or underappreciated?
2: The research for this was frustrating and exciting in equal measure, I think is a good way to put it. The the starting point for me was the East India Company. And the East India Company records are wonderful. They're very considerable, they're very rich, and a lot of them have survived. It includes the, the minutes of business meetings in London, merchants from letters overseas, some of their account books, you know, everything you need to put together this life of a merchant. The problem for me. The more I looked into the East India Company, was that despite its resonance historically in in the popular imagination, it's only a very small part of what merchants are doing in the early modern world. This century that I talk about, the East India Company was maybe a maximum of about 10% of England's trade, even at the end of this period. So I wanted to delve into the other 90%. And most of that's conducted in regions and by corporations whose records are not as rich. We're looking for scraps of letters that have survived the occasional account book of a merchant that, for reasons unknown, happens to have made it into the Metropolitan Archive. And that took me across 29 other archives, I think, in the end, across England, to try and dig up these scraps. In some places, like Bristol, you had the corporate records of the city, and in others, it was finding the records of individual merchants. But they are few and far between, and a lot of the book is about trying to use the surviving records, often of corporations, to understand the everyday lives of merchants, even when we've lost their everyday records. And that's something that I think is really important, and that is something that we have to do if we're going to understand the development of Britain's trade and empire in a more complete way. If we want to understand it in its global dimensions, especially including the trades to Europe, it requires us to use some of these perhaps Less exciting um, but equally important materials alongside those of companies like the East India Company.
1: From talking a little bit about the corporations, we've kind of addressed a little bit maybe the more individual side of things. But what role did these corporations really play? How should we see them now? I think we might have an image in our heads, but how how do should we see them in the early modern period?
2: The range of corporations in the early modern period, I think. It's quite difficult for us to understand all of them and the roles they played because some of them took on roles that are fairly comparable to a modern business. Something like the East India Company, again, to use that example, it's a joint stock organisation. The people who invest in it pull their money and they operate on behalf of all of those individuals. But that was quite Unique. Um, There are a few other joint stocks, but it's not the most common form of business organization. The most common form of corporation in the trading sense is something called a regulated company. And these regulated uh, companies—they included the Merchant Adventurers that traded to Germany, the Levant Company to the Ottoman Empire, um, and various others. These were not designed as joint stocks. Their members did not pull their money and then have the company act on their behalf. They instead, the company just provided a layer of regulation under which all of its members had to operate. So the rules I spoke about earlier, the the ways that you treat fellow members in a civil way, um, the way that you make sure that your goods are maintained highly, that you go to particular ports, these were insisted upon by the companies. But underneath that, individual merchants, individual members, could pretty much do what they wanted. They'd form partnerships just between two or three people. They'd send out their own ships. They'd organise the trade as... um, As individuals. So the corporation there is still vitally important for providing structure, but it's a little bit more distant in the day-to-day. If we're thinking in contemporary terms, the comparison might more be something like an association for chartered surveyors or chartered accountants, where you can join this organisation and prove that you're a professional, prove that you're good enough to take part in this business. But as long as you follow their rules, they don't really bother you day-to-day. They're more about making sure you are good enough and that you are a professional. And regulated companies had that sort of role in the early modern period. Beyond those, there are other corporations. Delivery companies that I've mentioned already were really important in a domestic sense. And for many merchants, they were a vital social and communal sort of center of activity and above them still in the domestic sense we have urban corporations so that's the way which cities like london or bristol or hull or york were governed so once you became finished your apprenticeship you joined a delivery company you were able to become a citizen of london or any of these other cities and then you were able to take part in the city corporations activities which is voting in sort of local government standing for local government uh being able to put your case before courts that are organised by this corporation of your peers. Um, And again, there's nothing really like that in an everyday sense that we experience today. Over the course of the following centuries, the state would take on many of those responsibilities and they'd be stripped away from some of these corporations that were so important for the early modern merchant. And that's something else that we see over the course of this period is the increasing efforts by people who are outside these corporations to try and break them down, members of the gentry, members of the court, the crown itself, who see these corporations as too powerful. The monopolistic privileges they have to do particular trades or particular crafts are just too much. There's They question why private merchants have so much power, and they start to strip away that power. Um, and we see that increasingly towards the middle of the 17th century and onwards. And by the time we get into the 18th century, many of these corporations have sort of ceased to exist in a significant sort of powerful way.
1: Is this perhaps when we start to see a shift from maybe more international trade to maybe more empire building in the terms of more colonisation rather than just trade?
2: Absolutely. We see the shift from trading enterprise towards colonial enterprise um taking place around the same time as many of these developments but the trajectory for sort of colonization that is effective that continues that maintains a territorial presence is something that really only comes about in the 17th century so we do see in the 16th century things like the roanoke enterprise in america the lost colony that's quite famous but that well, it's it's a lost colony. So we only sort of, we see colonization take on a more sort of permanent form with the establishment of the Virginia colony in America. Um, English interests in colonizing an island are expanded around the same time, 1610 or so, with the establishment of the Irish Society. And these are organizations that take on many of the structural foundations of the trading corporations, but they are not restricted only to merchants. And that's a huge difference. We see, for the first time, large numbers of members of the gentry or landowners in England being able to invest in these overseas activities. And as they invest, they obviously want to be represented on the government of these organisations. In some cases, like in Ireland, it's still very much a colonial activity that's restricted to citizens of London's, so that's craftsmen and merchants and others. But in Virginia, it's more likely to find uh, noblemen present or members of the gentry, and that changes the dynamics that are involved um, in the way that they're governed. What I would say is that while merchants do increasingly lose out sort of on a governmental level in these colonial enterprises, they are an ever-present group within these activities they are the people who are supplying these plantations supplying these colonies who are benefiting from the export of new colonial um, products Uh, tobacco being the obvious example in virginia and then sugar in the caribbean merchants are benefiting from this it's adding something else to their range of commodities And they're also helping fuel the expansion of these colonies through merchant involvement in things like the transatlantic uh, trade and enslaved people, or the migration of people from England to North America. So merchants are at the heart of many of these processes, even if we see within this colonial context a diminishing of their authority sort of at the highest level of government.
1: I guess this brings us back to talking about your mere merchants that is it's a phrase you've pulled out the sources. we've spoken about it here. It's a phrase you bring up quite often in your book. Does this shift the way that merchants were seen by others in their own time?
2: I think the way that merchants are seen by society doesn't change when they're only participating in mercantile activities. There's an ongoing um, acceptance that trading overseas does require a particular set of skills, and people recognise that merchants have that. This isn't without exception. There are people who challenge this. But generally speaking, there is Um, There's acceptance of this merchant identity in many of these locations, even if the specific monopolies of which merchants get trade where um, start to diminish. We see merchants from ports outside London increasingly want to take part in some of these new trades to other parts of the world. I think where we see the criticism of this merchant identity is in locations where they're moving beyond what's considered sort of just acceptable trade. It's when merchants start to take part in colonies. It's when merchants start to build their own war fleets. It's when merchants decide that they should be able to take control of the entire northern Atlantic and monopolise the fish stock that's found there. It's these steps beyond what's acceptable that motivate people to question whether merchants are Taking advantage of their unique status in society. On the other hand, merchants themselves, as you might expect, do not quite take that perspective. They instead see their unique skills, their experience as being a reason why they are the ideal people to be in control of colonies or fishing or fleets or whatever, because they say that they are the people who have gone out and seen the world already, they have unique experiences of what it is like to go to these places. And therefore, why would you let some landowner from Suffolk take part? It makes much more sense to have a merchant in charge. That's the argument they make. And that's successful sometimes and less successful other times. But overall, comes into this idea, and perhaps this is something that we see after the end of the period of the book, once you get into the later 17th century, when merchants start to look at the East India Company, as something that could be pushed even further beyond being a trading organisation. They start to think about the opportunities in the South Atlantic or in the Indian Ocean or further as potential colonial opportunities. They start to go, we've done this elsewhere. As merchants, we know what we're doing. We have the capital. We've benefited from empire. So why not take on even more responsibility? And that's something that we see shifting what it means to be a merchant in the latter and ongoing period beyond my book. Um, Being a merchant moves on from just being trade and becomes something even more.
1: So thinking more maybe about the recent past, my final question to you would be, can we perhaps draw any parallels with the lives of the merchants in the past to today?
2: Merchants' lives in the early Mon period, were defined by risks. An awful lot of the ways in which they constructed their business, that they built up these organizations, was designed to allow them to overcome the challenges that they were facing of the globalizing world. Some of that was undertaken in ways that would be completely absurd today. But some of them, I think, the idea for collaboration at the heart of good business practice, Um, civility as something that can help you build trusting relationships with people in Britain and overseas, the need to regulate effectively to ensure that standards are kept high. I think these are all things that we can appreciate are important. And the challenges of globalisation that continue into the 21st century, we're no longer worried about whether the clothes that we're importing are maintained to a high standard while they're shipped. But we do want to know that the artificial intelligence in the devices that we're importing has been regulated and is considered and we're only being allowed to use it once it's deemed trustworthy in some respect. And I think that is something that is an ongoing and ever-present challenge when it comes to trade. It is always about going beyond your sort of known borders. It's about not necessarily more doing business with strangers, but it's still doing business maybe in strange technologies or in strange new markets. And finding ways to adapt to that is something that businesses especially, but also just normal people, need to do to survive and flourish in a globalising 21st century world. Um, And I wouldn't say that we should look back to the merchants of my book for sort of great lessons about how to do it, but perhaps more effectively we could look back and see some of the failures and where it went wrong and make sure that we try not to do the same today. That was Edmund Smith.
0: His book, Merchants, The Community That Shaped England's Trade and Empire, 1550 to 1650, is out now published by Yale University Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.